All right, I see some people starting. Um, this is going to be like a sort of a live podcast. I'm going to be talking about uh, the final chapter of my book, Eternal Struggle. Uh, the chapter is called What is Reality? Now, before I start reading this chapter, uh, let me briefly introduce. Uh, just recently, I realized that I myself have never seen the Earth revolve around the sun. I've been told to believe this. <clears throat> and it seems plausible, right, that the Earth revolves around the sun. We got the idea from Copernicus, right, but I've never seen the evidence. And then I realized how many other things that science and scientists have told me about that I have never seen evidence for, right? So if you start to lay it out before you, so to speak, you write it down, like all the things that you're told to believe in for which you yourself have never seen the evidence. I've never seen an atom. I've never even seen one under a microscope because I never had access to such powerful microscopes. I've never seen these things, right? Uh, I've never seen the edge of the universe, yet they say that the universe is a sort of body that hermetically seals off everything else. Uh, the universe is supposed to, be, supposed to be a body that contains everything within it, and there's no outside, right? There's nothing outside, there's just the nothingness or nothing. And that's a bit weird since we are told to believe in these really big concepts, but no proof has ever been provided. Uh, scientists have never traveled to the edge of the universe to show us that there's an edge there. Maybe there is no edge. Maybe the somethingness and the nothingness like fade into each other. Maybe the nothingness, therefore, is also all around and present right here in my room, for example. Um, no, um, I'm going to ask like somebody asks if I'm promoting uh, if I'm if I'm promoting flat Earth. Well, that's the question is like, what is reality? And that's the chapter of the book I'm about to read is that um, so much of what we call science has been uh, pre-designed for us by occult movements that are really in charge of our world, I believe. So, for example, would an astronaut be able to verify for us that the Earth is actually revolving around the sun? Uh, perhaps you can, perhaps you can do that, but that would be the only person in the world who can see this with their own eyes. And we have to simply rely on their testimony and rely on some photographs and some videos, right? And my difficulty with all of this is you have removed people's own senses. You're saying to people, what you can see with your own eyes, that's nonsense. You may see the sun revolve around the earth, right? But we're telling you not to believe it. Now, why is it so that therefore ordinary citizens, ordinary human beings are not able to use their senses to make sense of the world and that we have to rely on a scientific authority? And that's a big problem. We can't allow uh, such an abstract scientific authority in the hands of literally just a handful of people. Maybe only the, I don't know, one or 200 people who've actually been to space. They are our only source. And this isn't right. Um, it means that from a philosophical point of view, there should be a way for ordinary people to use their senses, to make sense of the world in a way that they can actually see into the future a little bit, make proper predictions and work with uh, what is necessary for their survival. So 
Um, my book is called Eternal Struggle, subtitled Exposing the Scientific Worldview. My full name is always Johannes Mattis Conrad, but I, I uh, published my book as Mattis Conrad, so you can uh, look it up. Uh, and I want to start reading to you this chapter, and if possible, I'm going to try to do some uh, recommendations. Uh, I'm going to interact a little bit if possible. Um, so what is reality? Uh, there's a, it starts with a quote by Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, like, only a God can save us. The only possibility available to us is that by thinking and poetizing, we prepare for a readiness for the appearance of a God. This is quite an interesting quote by Martin Heidegger. What is he really saying? He's saying that he doesn't think there is a God yet, but a God may appear as a result of thinking and poetizing, meaning a future God. I call it the God becoming. <clears throat> uh, Aaron asks if this book is in Dutch. It is available in Dutch as Eeuwige Strijd, Eternal Struggle. I translated it as well as Eeuwige Strijd. Uh, yeah, Heidegger is a very intelligent man who writes very complicated texts, but so Heidegger tells us to believe in something, uh, a future God, the God becoming, the God that may uh, be materialized out of the universe we are living in. Uh, I find that very interesting. So I'm um, just going to read the, read the book now. Maybe it'll take me like 30 minutes or so. I mean, the, the chapter of the book. This is the final chapter. Um, I love you too. Slowly but steadily, I've grown convinced that the physical world is, or may be, a metaphor for the real world. Reality, I think, is made up of nothing but minds pushing toward and pulling away from one another, extinguishing one another and giving birth to each other, so creating cyclical re-occurrences, or just occurrences, of events at infinitum, but not necessarily in the same order. And this refers a little bit to Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return. By no means does cyclical reality condemn humanity to repetition. Cycles demand of us that we use each to learn to better ourselves. What we learn in one generation, we pass on to the next. And so reality renews itself in the eternal struggle against nothingness. Uh, eternal struggle is also the title of this book. In Dutch, Eeuwige Strijd. In the struggle between good and evil, the good may never win the war, but must win every battle, for evil needs only one victory. The scientific worldview, however, instructs people in the belief in a logical, rational universe governed by unchanging and therefore predictable laws, the laws of physics. Having only one origin in the Big Bang, everything in existence must be made of the same sort of things atoms, particles, neutrons, electrons, and so on. Life on Earth, too, evolutionary biologists say, must have evolved from the same electrified puddle of random chemicals. This atomized worldview, I argue, is a figment of pure scientific imagination, and for a straightforward reason. Scientific instruments flow from the need for economic accounting, 
The instrument's designers and operators are traditionally educated to perceive reality in terms of smallest movable commercial units. For example, individual workers, parcels, and particles. Dividing the world up into measurable particles made it so much easier for state bureaucrats to control flows of revenue, goods, and people. Uh, here I refer to the book Seeing Like a State by Professor James Scott, who actually explained this uh, perfectly well. In other words, the atomized scientific worldview has no bearing on quote-unquote real reality, but only on the reduced or myopic reality of state economics. Only by presupposing an abstract oneness of everything could a caste of Kabbalists seize control of the world. Oneness, meaning there shall be only one state, the world state, is a false prophecy. Science, and by that I mean the worldview, the scientific worldview, is the belief in material reality. But scientists can only believe this on the grounds of assumptions that they have never observed directly, not with their own eyes, but only through the use of instruments. The laws of physics weren't chiseled in stone. They were not discovered in the sense that they were never really covered up. The constants weren't recorded anywhere on the cosmic canvas. These laws and constants are actually mental abstractions that only live in scientists and physicists and mathematicians' heads and their lively imaginations. No one has ever seen the universe expand, for example. We've never sent a camera to the edge of the universe to record it expanding. We've never seen this. It is conjectured. conjectured. No one has seen what happens at the edge of the universe, where material reality, apparently, expands into sheer nothingness at the speed of light, generating new time and space from nothing, all of the time. No one has ever flown at the speed of light to see if this speed is indeed a constant. Or are we supposed to believe that empty space was always there? But empty space isn't really empty. It still contains time. And to make their convoluted equations work out and to up uphold the fiction of scientific truth, scientists now even have to presuppose that infinite empty space has a weight greater than nothing. If we take a region, and I'm quoting here, if we take a region of space and get rid of everything within it, dust, gas, people, and even the radiation passing through, namely absolutely everything within the region, if the remaining empty space weighs something, then that would correspond to the existence of a cosmological term such as Einstein invented. So Einstein spoke about the cosmological constant, right? And in order to, for that to make, to make that work, scientists have had to say that empty space has a weight. It has to weigh something a little bit, tiny little bit. That's correct, though. That's correct, though. Einstein did invent the cosmological God constant. He... Wait. All right. He invented it in his own head to justify an unproven belief in a materialistic worldview. That's not scientific discovery. That's actually science fiction because you imagine it in your head first. 
And where does the belief in a progressive materialist reality really come from? Marx wasn't the first to cook it up. The belief in materialism and universalism is as old as state bureaucracy. So I made a reference here to, to between Einstein and Marx, Karl Marx. So Karl Marx and the Marxists, they are materialists and they believe that everything in existence, everything in existence in the universe is matter in motion, progressing toward what they hope will be the socialist utopia and accelerating toward it. And that, that idea of everything is uh, matter in motion, accelerating toward utopia can be expressed as E, everything or energy equals M mass, matter times c the speed of light motion squared which is uh to accelerate it like to use like a sort of a exponential growth curve accelerate toward uh, an asymptote uh, uh, an end uh, e equals mc squared therefore can be regarded as simply the marxist belief captured in a, a mathematical formula observable reality provides us with a handy metaphor in most parts of the world, traditional peoples used to believe in a dualism of a spiritual father and an earthly mother. Literally, the sky father fertilizes the world mother with his rain. From her bosom, a fertile people are born. People must toil for their mother, plow her, but worship the father, please him. However, without frequent rains fertilizing the deserts, the Holy Mary could not be fertilized. Immaculate Conception thus renounces the Father. The Biblical Joseph was Mary's feminist ally, perhaps, but he had no stake in her offspring. <clears throat> the strangeness of this cult symbolizes the renunciation of the spiritual world, for in a desert there is only the barren womb of the material mother. The belief in a chastising, unchanging God is not native to Europeans. It had to be introduced from the, immutable, from the immutably unforgiving climate of the Middle East. The one God of monotheism represents the desert sun. In fact, the Star of David, I, I believe, also represents the sun, and the six points of the Star of David represent the, uh, uh, the six planets that were known then. With the naked eye, you can only see six planets. Uh, meaning ours and five others, right, uh, in the night sky. Uh, thanks to telescopes, we've been able to see a lot more. So the god of monotheism represents the desert zone, and one god for all desert dwellers, one pharaoh, one king, one language, one nation, one race, one world. It's the idea of universalism and humanism. Uh, someone asked if this is streaming on YouTube. I will put it on YouTube, uh, but I'm streaming via TikTok. I don't know how to do a dual streams on two platforms at the same time yet. So, um, When we read the metaphors that reality presents us in this manner, perhaps we can reason through what time, space, and movement are. Um, earlier in this book, in the earlier chapters, I asked, like, what is time, what is space, and what is movement? And then I try to answer that here. Where, for example, did the linear progressive time concept begin? Which people thought of it? And why did it replace the older idea of cyclical time that Nietzsche rediscovered? 
Considering the different conceptions of time that different peoples have adopted during different phases of human history, we know that time is a relative concept. What we believe time is depends on our cultural experience. Time is not universal. Scientists never found a time particle, for example, nor the shortest unit of time. Time seems to be something elastic that you can keep dividing up in ever smaller units, and it really only depends on the equipment you're using. An ordinary stopwatch can probably measure milliseconds. Something more fancy can do micro, picoseconds, right? But it can be infinitely smaller. There seems to be no end to it. And that's peculiar because then time certainly is not a particle. It's something elastic, more like an energy, for example, a uh, uh, continuous energy rather than dichotomous. At the same time, we, at the same time, because we consider time to be so ubiquitous and its existence so unquestioning, we must look for time's origin in the differing geographic habitats human beings have taken for granted. Perhaps time lies within us. An all-changing experience that radically influenced people's worldview was the start of urban civilization and its rise to dominance during the past several millennia, or actually specifically in Europe, that will be the last few centuries. Although urbanization started probably in Mesopotamia uh, with Uruk and so on, right, in modern Iraq. Uh, urbanism introduced a completely new concrete habitat for human beings. Walled enclosures changed or restricted our lives and regimented us to fit the social machinery required for running an urban economy. You see, uh, if I may use the example of the Netherlands for a bit here, uh, the Netherlands is a very urbanized country. If you look at countries on the country level, I believe the Netherlands now has uh, the most dense population in the world, with more than 400 people per square kilometer. Compare that to the USA, it would be like 34 for the USA. So the, US, you know, uh, the Netherlands is 10 times as uh, densely populated as the US as a whole. Now I understand, of course, New York City is much more densely populated than the Netherlands. But if we look at countries on a country level, the Netherlands is the most densely populated country in the world nowadays. And that means if you look at the Netherlands, if you've ever lived there or been there, we have these massive halls, uh, shopping malls, we have sports halls, uh, we have offices, <clears throat> and so on. A lot of our infrastructure, of course, is there to protect us against the cold environment. Uh, it gets cold in the winters, so we don't like that. So everything we build, the swimming pools and so on, a lot of it is now under a roof in a big hall. It also means that Dutch people are more and more living, just like urban people in New York City, for example, are more and more living inside the boxes of a completely artificial world. We are so disconnected from nature that nature just becomes uh, an adornment on our walls. If you go to a Starbucks, for example, you may see some nice imagery on the wall that looks like nature. But we have reduced nature to a wallpaper. Uh, I think that is going to be going to prove uh, deeply unhealthy to human beings at some point. One might call urban civilization a meta-civilization, for, for it exists through and across all other kinds of civilizations, absorbing their surplus populations. <laughs> Sorry. Urban states are, in effect, population machines. 
Cities have won the dominance in human culture because they continuously absorb excess people from the countryside, rural peoples, lured in with the false promise of a better life as the propaganda goes. And this is still true today, right? Most mass immigration coming into the West is mass immigration of people from foreign countryside to our cities. So it's still from the countryside to the city. And that's how it was also in Europe itself. Um, say around the 19th century, a lot of people moved from the countryside to the cities and that's still happening. It's always from countryside to city, possibly due to the mechanization of agriculture, you need fewer and fewer people working on the fields, but also because rural people tend to have more children and they send them to the cities for education and a better life. Soon after their arrival though, being the latest batch of suckers, migrants find themselves heavily indebted in the city's financial Ponzi schemes. In cities, established, established urban elites know precisely how to exploit the arriving hordes with prostitution, drugs, and alcohol for men, and by parading around wealthy hyper-alpha males for the women, if not the pharaoh himself. Cities welcome migrants' productive and reproductive labor so long as it con contributes to state revenue streams owned and controlled by the established rich. It was urbanization, after all, that centralized human labor in the hands of ever smaller cliques of deceivers and their pharaonic personalities. Without cities full of landless people, there could have been neither capitalism, the exploitation of productive labor, nor socialism, the exploitation of reproductive labor today. Urban civilization first introduced among human beings the belief in some form of progress. Economic growth is what they consider progress from some unknown origin, the rural wilderness, toward a regimented society called civilization, governed by abstract laws and constants, or the government, along the lines of continuous self-improvement, the need for efficiency. Uh, someone asks which book this is. This book is, I'll type it out, this is Eternal Struggle. Uh, in Dutch, my name is Johannes Matthijs Koenraad, but you can anglicize it a bit as uh, Johannes Matthijs Conrad. The earliest known urban civilizations arose in and around the Middle East, Possibly urbanization began in Gubleki Tepe, uh, a place in present-day Turkey, and then spread, the urbanization then spread to the deltas of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, where large numbers of cities were built, starting five to 7,000 years ago with cities such as Ur, Urk, Nippur, or Eridu. Soon after that, ancient Egyptian civilization started along the Nile. What each of these ancient civilizations had in common was that their political and economic power centers, their, the political and economic power centers, lay near or on the way to grand river deltas. Uh, in Mesopotamia, I know the, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates River come together in a river delta. Same with the Nile, it ends in a river delta. The Rhine in Europe ends in a delta. Uh, so they were unique river civilizations. That's interesting that the earliest civilizations we've had as human beings were river civilizations that uh, ended in a river delta, right? So a river is also a metaphor for matter in motion. It flows goods, for example, along the river. 
and for linear time, it is unidirectional. Rivers usually flow one way, in one direction. They don't go back up the hill, they go down, right? So for obvious reasons, basic economics dictated, it was cheaper to send goods and people down the river than up because of the flow. Creating the additional illusion of origin, destiny, direction, and progress from poor sources up in the hills and the mountains to rich sinks down below, just usually just before the, the river delta. In each of these cases, the Nile, Tigris, Euphrates, and I should add perhaps also Danube, uh, the Yangtze River, or the Rhine, the river offered a narrow band of life along their banks while crossing through an otherwise barren territory. Especially in Egypt, this is the case. The banks of the Nile were fertile with black soil, the Kemet. Some black people now think Kemet refers to black people, but it refers to the black soil of the Nile uh, where you could do farming and so on. The rivers eased the flow of goods and people through territories occupied by many different ethnicities, the sources, toward power centers, <coughs> power centers such as Thebes and Uruk, the sinks of power where the wealth uh, is centralized. <coughs> I need a little sip. <coughs> uh, someone asks, how long have I studied history? Well, I'm self-taught, you know. I've read over 1,200 books about all sorts of topics, and I spend my days thinking and writing and speaking. So yeah, you get to a point where you can be, be a self-taught, smart person, you know? The idea that you can only become smart because of education, it just isn't true. Just talk to anybody with a PhD. Most of them are just quite stupid. So. Since the rivers of trade crossed through so many homelands, washing away so many people downstream, managing multiculturalism and diversity became standard operating procedure uh, for river civilizations. Along with diversity came the need for a unified language, central government, and a centralized education system. And so over a span of thousands of years, a Middle Eastern desert worldview established itself, namely a view of the world as a narrow, continuous, unidirectional progress from some wild, uncultured origin, say Nubia, toward great wealth, great wealth and diversity, Thebes, right, in Egypt, e.g. goods and people centralized in the hands of wealth, wealthy elites under the auspices, <laughs> what a word, <coughs> of an expert elite, the knowers of the laws. So the expert elite in our time, those are the scientists. They claim to know how it all works and you can't verify it yourself because you're stupid, right? You can't understand the math and the formulae and therefore you are locked out of a greater understanding, right? <clears throat> Inhabitants of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia had no reason to question this natural order. They had no reason to doubt linear progress from nothing toward utopia, from Nubia to Thebes. Not only did their environment shape their psyche, but it also shaped their view of the whole world, including that of time and space. Today's Western worldview of eternal progress from nothing to utopia originally was a Middle Eastern invention that spread to Europe with the help of Christianity and the conquests of the Roman Empire. Roman Christianity successfully subjugated European minds to worship the ideals of universalism, materialism, the promise of a better life, multiculturalism, and abstract unchanging laws, science. 
Pre-Christian Europeans' concept of time must have been very different, for the archaeological record shows that Old Norse and Old Germanic peoples frequently dumped their wealth in bogs, forever removing gold, silver, metals, and weapons from circulation. These peoples were anti-materialist. They likely believed in the cyclical reality of the seasons of the summers of light and the winters of darkness. They believed in something like an eternal return, the annual revival of ancestral spirits, and their because when the spring comes, everything comes back to life after death, and their struggle with darkness necessarily was necessary to bring back the springtime. Time, in my view, what we call time, right? So you have clock time and historical time, but time in the philosophical sense has no basis in physical reality. Our perception of time is a metaphor for something else, namely our thinking about the world. Time is thinking. While they say that time is money in materialistic societies, if you go to New York City to Wall Street, time is money, right? In non-materialist societies, time is growth. Time is thinking, the growth of the mind. In the Western world, people sometimes say, I need more time to think about it. It means they are so preoccupied with work and compulsory activities that it oppresses their thinking. The growing demands of highly technologized, urbanized, and economized societies has robbed modern peoples of their ability to think. There's no time for it. The weight of modernity appears to be crushing people's souls. We have become slaves of an urban civilization that completely usurps our minds and attention spans. And so people of the modern age naturally feel that we somehow would like to have more time for thinking. This a modern society cannot allow, for free thinking people lead them to the subversion of bureaucratic order. What purpose do censorship laws, political correctness, speech codes, and other such societal taboos really serve? They serve to oppress people's thinking by making spoken or written expression thereof a crime. Modern states don't desire people that can think for themselves. Modern states want masses they can mold like clay. It is in this light that we must regard the atheist movement for it serves to sever people from their thinking and prepare citizens for state programming. Atheism is a required step for one's proper assimilation into the urban collective. By replacing God, a people's collective racial soul, with a belief in the state, a machine, people surrender their thinking to self-proclaimed experts. And to regain one's independence, it is not enough to pick a new age religion, this or that. One must first and foremost sever one's ties with urban society and replant one's roots in fertile soil. Oh, I need a little sip. To the question of what reality is, my best answer is that reality is a sort of mental pluriverse, not a universe, made up of different groups of minds competing for dominance by any means. This eternal struggle naturally produces prolonged phases, phases of slow-moving stalemate, which we call peace, interchanged by periods of collective confusion and 
phase changes that we call war that result <clears throat> in the establishment of one or more dominant modes of thinking over others until everything changes again. Uh, these would be uh, the paradigm changes that we have witnessed in science itself. When we go, for example, from uh, Newton to, to Einstein, we have a paradigm shift. Or even before that, you had Euclides, from Euclides to Newton as another paradigm shift. And who is to say that Einstein got it right? I predict that in the next few, next 10 years, we're going to see another paradigm change in science and everything will be different again. And the point is that it will always be different. There will always be paradigm shifts in science. However, this process in and of itself has no utopian purpose. At times, people may genuinely believe that they are progressing towards some end, but at other times, such thinking is replaced with more pessimistic notions. In the end, purpose is what people think up for themselves. It is not given to you. It's not dictated. Life doesn't necessarily give people purpose, but people can give their own lives purposeful meaning. A mental universe has no physical record of the past. It can imagine its own past. It can change that past too. And in the struggle for dominance, successful bands of minds should quickly try to establish their thinking as an unquestionable authority. That's what scientists have done. Other minds may continuously undermine said authority by questioning it. That's what the philosophers are doing. And in the end, the fall of one dogma merely introduces another. And I think religious people already understand that. So we receive the insight that the scientific worldview that gave the universe a definite age and origin is but one particular mode of thought competing against many other beliefs in an eternal mental universe. We may be living in the age of science for now, but no worldview can stay objectively or universally true forever. Reality itself is continually changing. Uh, Nietzsche said that even the laws of physics are themselves evolving, and I believe that is prob probably true. If our reality is indeed mental in origin, and if there are no unchanging laws and constants, why then do nearly all worldviews known to man adopt a belief in time, space, and movement? Time, space, and motion are the most fundamental metaphors of reality. Time represents the mind, space, its memory, and movements are our thoughts. Okay. When I say that time is, a, is, is, is the mind and space is its memory, it kind of works like this. Uh, if I would move an object from one place to another, it is the space that remembers where I left it, right? Whereas, so space acts as a sort of physical memory of our actions. Uh, if, I, if I'm walking down the beach with my, uh, uh, without my shoes on, I leave my foot an imprint of my foot on the sand. The sand remembers that, but only until the water washes it away again, and then the memory is reset. So the memory is physical, whereas the mind, me remembering that I went to the beach, that's, that's a different kind of memory, but that is a memory in my, in my head. That is a thought, right? What we call the past, or history, in my view, doesn't really exist because there's no, there's no record, uh, no recording of all our actions record on the hard drive of the universe. The universe doesn't have a hard drive. All we know about the past comes from sources that exist only in the present, mom present moment. If you rewatch, if you replay this video after I uploaded it uh, to YouTube, uh, what you're watching 
exists in your present moment in the future. So say you watch this video a year from now, you're watching it in the present moment a year from now, you're not actually going back into time to watch me say this now, right? So um, our, our past exists only with us in the present. For example, an academic history book about ancient Sparta exists in the present moment. You go to the library and you find it there, right? I cannot, however, travel back in time to experience life in Sparta. History comes from written texts left behind by witnesses and earlier historians, and a lot of it is also just corroborated, corroboration and conjecture by our, uh, from archaeological finds. All of these things, however, old texts and artifacts exist with us in the same present moment. All of the so-called dinosaur fossils exist with us in the present moment. These things themselves are maybe said to be three million years old, but uh, they are here with us in the present moment. It's not like we're going back in time to dig them up. So the older such finds are, and the more weathered and eroded they may appear, and the more difficult it will be for us to interpret them. Eventually, all knowledge of the past is blurred and lost. Only through painstaking effort can historians working in the present maintain some highly myopic view of the past. Indeed, the universe we live in doesn't appear to contain a record of the past states. We shouldn't expect it either. In computer terms, recording all of the past in the present would create a gigantic bloat or overkill of data. If we had to store a complete record of the movement of every atom and every particle since the Big Bang, we would need many additional universes to provide for storage. Our universe appears to solve this problem of inefficient history bloat by storing the past in present space, namely by leaving behind nothing more than a footprint. This type of storage is analog, not digital, for it weathers, wears and tears until it disintegrates into something historians can no longer identify. <clears throat> Space is the universe's memory. Space shows us the last known state of a historical development in the present moment. When a child finishes building its sandcastle on a beach, the resulting towers are formed in space. But space cannot keep a record of every sandcastle ever built. To prevent bloat, space has to make room for new history. This reality achieves by eroding the present. Wind, water, rain, your parents and other children nearby may each step in and ruin the sandcastle. Ruin is the natural state of our reality, for every thinking mind participating in this illusion has an interest in undermining other minds' thinking. A sandcastle, of course, is the product of a child's mind. By sculpting sound, a child imposes its thinking and its will onto the sound, onto the beach. Other minds the wind, the sea, have an interest in imposing their will, and so erode the castle. Everything is made of minds, even the laws of physics are mental fictions. Just as we forget memories, reality forgets the past. Just as we focus our attention on new things to do, present space makes room for the future. Physical matter is a collection of memories stored in space, including in history books. Motion is the process of forgetting and thinking new thoughts. Motion is mental activity. Historians are to history what repeaters are to HAM radios. There is a natural conflict between time and space. The output of time's thinking is stored in space as physical memory. Time, or thinking, can rely on this memory to expand its thinking into the future. 
to go back and rethink mistakes. Space must erode and forget much of itself to make room for new thinking. The size and age of our universe then are not determined by scientific measurement, but by the scientist's own imagination. The future is what we make of it, or what we think of it. The past is what we think we can still remember of it. The present is what we think we are observing right now. Thus, everything is thinking. 10,000 years from now, hardly a few history books shall remember our vague, unsure existence until eventually space and time have entirely forgotten about us as, if, as though we'd never existed. The conflict between space and time is what I call the eternal struggle. By pushing the present state out to the past, i.e. eroding and forgetting, to make room for the future, the eternal struggle between time, the mind, and space, the memory, excites the illusion of physical reality. Um, going on to our next part. So why should it be so that the true nature of reality can only be measured with costly scientific instrumentation? Why should reality expose its inner working only to cold, heartless machines made of steel and glass? Or other materials, right? Why should an elite of educated experts be the chosen few to interpret the instrument's output correctly? In this section, I shall make only one assumption, namely that the view of reality as perceived by uneducated, ignorant people is in fact the correct view. In this section, I'm doing away with the exclusive and elitist scientific worldview that only trained experts can verify. I call my approach the ignorant method. When we speak of infinity or eternity, for example, what do we mean? We know we cannot observe infinity. We don't live long enough to observe infinity or eternity. Infinity and eternity, therefore, are mathematical assumptions let us, for once, abandon these assumptions. Let us accept that we don't last long enough to observe infinity or eternity. <clears throat> that means we cannot say it exists. What insights about the world around us might we acquire if we constructed a view based on such ignorant observation? Specifically, I will attempt to gain insight about our present reality by using nothing but my innate senses. Those would be sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste, and of course, my mind, <clears throat> my common sense. I define common sense as precisely that mode of thinking that starts from ignorant observation rather than from educated mental abstractions. What would an what would an <clears throat> sorry, what would an uneducated farmer assume about the universe? Would he ever imagine a universe of precisely 13.62 billion years old? The farmer's reality, by definition, is experienced locally and lasts his lifetime, meaning <clears throat> when he dies, it's over, he forgets. He does not and cannot know whether reality shall continue after his death. He may see himself as part of a bigger whole of unknown size, but the whole shall forever remain unknown to him largely. He won't live to see it. He can't travel the whole world and meet everybody. If we begin observing reality in such a manner, we learn, for example, that change is both fleeting and recurrent. 
Change is a collection of fleeting moments and occurrences or events that take place within our local, non-universal experience of the world. For us, ignoramuses, there's no reason to assume that our experiences can ever be extrapolated to some universal understanding of everything. We're not scientists, after all. <clears throat> I notice that when I speak more than 30 minutes, I get a dry, my vocal cords dry up. That's a bit, well, it won't last too long anymore. Parts of our reality appear as fleeting to us, but much of it seems stable. Other things are recurrent. A campfire is extinguished. A squirrel runs up a tree just as we run past it. Lightning strikes, clouds gather, our journey ends, night falls. Another fire is made. Another squirrel jumps down a tree, perhaps not the same one. Thunder clouds disappear, a journey begins, and the sun comes up again. The things we do each day betray a cyclical nature of reality. We get up in the morning, heat a stove for cooking, go to bed in the evening, and we do the same thing the next day, or most days. Reality demands our participation in cyclical activities, I would now say rituals. Our shoes, if we care about them, require regular maintenance or some maintenance, as do our bodies, homes, families, and farms. Repeated maintenance is a form of resistance, but also a form of care. If we care about our environment and ourselves, we shall have to meet the challenges of our maintenance by developing competency. We need to get good at caring for ourselves and we need to learn how to get good at caring for ourselves in certain ways and for our shoes and our house and our farm and so on. <clears throat> we, re we respond to the world around us by paying attention, by thinking and by acting. Care and competence then appear to be our guiding principles. So we learn that reality, whatever it is, expects something of us to keep ourselves alive, if that is what we wish, namely care and competence. We shape, we better shape up, learn the tricks of the trades, specialize and generalize, and most importantly, develop our thinking <clears throat> about our localized, non-universal world. Most people, even in our time, of course, they live uh, in one place and spend most of their life there, right? Not, not, not many people move around every year. We realize others must be doing the same thing. We are not alone. We are independent minds with each our own origin, but we can also group together and act as collectives in the form of friends, brothers, families, nations, tribes, races, and the world, or even the universe. Much of our thinking in one situation can be applied to other situations. This greatly enhances our thinking efficiency. The more thinking we have done, the more we remember doing, the more problems we find, but we also find more solutions. In life, we must all develop a thinking efficiency to meet the challenges of, our, of the future. This is regardless of, how, of you having a low or a high IQ, you all have to do the same basic thing. Even an ignorant farmer must soon admit that some are better at thinking than others. Were these others innately smarter? Perhaps. Perhaps they faced more significant difficulties. Perhaps they traveled more. Maybe they sought out more problems to apply their thinking to. Uh, here I, I try to explain that having a high IQ may not be because you're smart, but it may be that you simply have experienced more <clears throat> in shorter periods of time. Some people by age 10, they have not experienced a lot. Other people by age 10, they have experienced way more that forced them to think about things. Does that influence your intelligence? Possibly it does. 
The word experience in German means Erfahrung. This word literally means to have traveled or sailed the world. In German, therefore, an experienced farmer is considered one who has seen more of the fur of the world than just his farm. A traveler has also faced more conditions that require his thinking. Perhaps experiences are the, are the source of our intelligence, but so is our willingness to seek them out. <clears throat> Some people, of course, don't care to seek out problems and to try to solve them, whereas other people uh, constantly look for new problems to solve. And those people will get more experience in thinking and may end up being more intelligent. Right? Uh, this book is called Eternal Struggle. Experience and intelligence produce a hierarchy of minds. Some people do well to listen to more experienced people, lest they wish to become known as stupid loudmouths. A hierarchy of minds makes it tempting for one to surrender one's thinking to a superior others. There is a trade-off. The, the cost of thinking isn't free. If you surrender your thinking to another's, you must pay for it with your loss of autonomy. From observations <clears throat> such as anyone can verify, not just the observations that only a clique of self-styled experts can, can verify, the uneducated farmer may conclude that everything appears to change. The earth, earth turns, right? Or at least we see the constellations turn, right? And crops grow, for example. Everything seems to have some kind of an origin. Everything originates from the present moment, at the very least, for we cannot always see farther back. Many things are fleeting, things come to pass. Many things are recurrent. Uh, you have day and night, rainfall, campfires, uh, grandfathers who die, right? These kind of phenomena often occur, not always to the same person, right? Some things outlast people, like the sun, the earth, the stars, outlast people. We know because if our grandfathers die, we know that the world lives on, right? Uh, there is more than matter. Uh, people outlast many other things. Smaller things die before we do. Our pets die often before we die. N not everything appears to be in motion. For example, I cannot see the earth itself move, even though I'm supposed to believe that according to the scientific worldview. I can't see that. I cannot see my earth move. I can see the stars move and the sun and the clouds, but I can't see the earth move. I also don't feel it moving. <clears throat> Time is relative because sometimes it feels as though time is flying and sometimes it's just very boring. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing is, um, reality is really about a consensus, like a far farmers gather to discuss regional issues and there they will have a conflict or some partial consensus. The scientific consensus is in itself also a consensus. Reality is authoritative. It means there are things we cannot hope to change within our lifetimes. This inexhaustive list of peasant wisdom doesn't list immutable laws. The insights rather form a descriptive grammar of directly observed reality, verifiable by anyone, even experts can do it. And though the grammar is neither objectively true nor universal, I believe it is a more useful and more accurate description of real reality and a good starting point for thinking about the world. Every farmer understands these things. Scientists understand them even better and demand the whole world surrender its thinking to science in the name of technological progress. Humanity has paid the price for it 
with the uprooting of its collective mind. Modern man has become a domesticated animal ruled by state farmers. And against this, we must revolt. <clears throat> Something strange happened during the 18th and 19th centuries. Up until then, generally speaking, the belief that a divine spirit had created the universe had been the predominant belief in the West. <clears throat> but the Marxist cabal popularized a mystical innovation, namely a belief in a future God, the God becoming, the God scientists say technological progress will unveil. This future God is one who requires the cooperation of all mankind to ensure its or her appearance. <clears throat> but dissident beliefs and deviant behaviors may forever thwart this arrival. To secure their faith, followers of the cult established a totalitarian globalist regime ruled by a bureaucratic zeal to include or incalculate all people, inculcate all people with the universal belief that technological progress shall bring us salvation. <clears throat> Technik macht frei, or technology sets you free, referring to Auschwitz. Children born of the grand scheme of Marxist materialism have to be educated or domesticated to align their minds and behaviors with the preconceived dream of a godly utopia. So children's creative minds have become technological society's greatest enemies. This is why children are being suppressed so much. <clears throat> as, such, as such societies progress, uh, so does their complexity. Soon the burden of fitting in and staying in line shall rise to the point where frustrated younger demographics prefer to turn their backs on society altogether. Older generations, failing or refusing to see what their dreams have reaped, must resort to ever-oppressive measures to protect their investments. <clears throat> it took Martin Heidegger, a Catholic philosopher, drawing from cyclical history, meaning Oswald Spengler, as much as from poetic theology or Angelus Silesius' works, to add a twist to Marxism's machine god, not technology, Heidegger believed, not matter in motion, but thinking and poetizing would bring humanity solace. And so we have arrived in a future-oriented era, an era full of people waiting for God. It is a metaphor for the conditional love of the bureaucratic states we grew up in, or the lack, there, the lack of love, rather. What, really mean, what it really means is that we have forgotten about our ancestors. We no longer honor or worship the ones who came before us, whose souls we carry forward. The connection between the present and our past has been severed. We have been uprooted. We have been commoditized. Modern people prefer to live in the future. The future is where everything will be better. So the government promises this. But, sever but by severing our spiritual ties with the past, we have devalued the present. We have lost our way. And in conclusion, when God returns from hiding within us, there shall be a reckoning. <clears throat> so, all right, thanks for watching. Uh, I'm going to post, so this was my live podcast show. I read the whole chapter of my book, Eternal Struggle. Uh, I'll put the image on one more time, <clears throat> this book. Uh, I'm going to put this video on YouTube as my uh, podcast episode. You can also subscribe to my, uh, <clears throat> to my, uh, uh, my newsletter on www.jmk.info. Uh, and, uh, well, thanks for watching. Thank you very much, everybody. <clears throat>